left off last night, we talked about how the fact that Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, has a somewhat, and we have to be very careful because we're going to be honest, but at the same time we don't want to bring disrepute to the scriptures, but it seems somewhat depressing. At least for a couple of verses, it seems, except for a couple of verses, it seems to be the kind of thing you'd say, why bother reading? It didn't uplift me. It certainly isn't truth in the sense that I can learn something good from it. In fact, what we talked about was the op- in fact, the opposite. That it's conveying the way things are in apparent ways that the world works, but not according to the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of man. And so, like, I don't want to know that. Do I? Do I want to know that? You know, is that, you know, is it something I should avoid because I really don't want the wisdom of the world, right? And you have to remember that, that Solomon wrote Kohelet not to teach the wisdom of the world. He wrote it to teach the wisdom of God. So we have to work extra hard. Remember, as we talked about last night too, though, the reason why we have to work extra hard to below the surface and dig down is because God wants to be hidden. And we talked about the reason why God wants to be hidden is because God wants us to use faith to apprehend Him, to find Him. And it's the exercise of faith that is the most pleasing to Him. Otherwise, He could just reveal Himself to the world from the start, right? And that would be good enough. That's not the way He wants to reveal Himself. He wants to reveal Himself, He wants to reveal Himself specifically and personally to individuals and to collectively to a people named Israel. So, let's pick up where we left off yesterday and anybody can join in. You don't have to wait until I say you have a question. Just say, I got something I want to say. Okay? Well, I was getting, excuse me. Hmm? That's very brief. That is that that is that is um, a matter of transitory. Something it's not permanent. Through, that's not permanent, and it's not going to satisfy you permanently. That's true. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to be satisfied because as you go through that, mm-hmm. that's when you fill in it. As you go through that, you can know something satisfied permanently. And it may be disconcerting we're not reading Ecclesiastes because that's your job during Sukkot is to read Ecclesiastes. So we're not reading it right now, but that's not the mean that you shouldn't read it. You should be reading Ecclesiastes. You should be studying it. All I'm giving you is a, maybe another way of looking at it that will help you not to be too depressed if you take the wrong perspective. Okay? While I was getting ready to talk about Ecclesiastes, though, and I'm reading the stages talking about Ecclesiastes, something I came across really kind of... I, when I read it at first, I said, well, that makes perfect sense according to what we're talking about, that God likes or wants to be hidden, as it were. And that is in a commentary talking about Ecclesiastes, the comparison to Ecclesiastes and the book of Esther. Why would Esther and Ecclesiastes have a correlation? Can anybody think of that? God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. It's the only book of the Bible that God is not mentioned. But the commentary was saying, this makes Esther the most holy book of all. Because God's not mentioned. And the explanation was exactly as I've been describing. Because it takes true faith to see God at work in the book of Esther. But even more so, the commentary went on to say is the book of Esther is just a book of history that has no purpose in scriptures at all unless it tells us something about 
something else yet to come. And they said the book of Esther is the most holy of all, but we, it will have the most marvelous of all truths and teachings revealed when Messiah comes to teach us. Like, Messiah? Who's Messiah? Where'd Messiah come from? And why do we have to have Messiah teach us the book of Esther? A nice historical book. There's some good teaching in it. But why would we need Messiah to teach us? Who's Messiah? Can anybody find for me one mention of Messiah by name in the Tanakh? No, The Messiah. The Messiah by name. The title by name. One verse. One verse. Half a verse. A word. <laughs> it's not mentioned. And yet when I read my commentaries, Rashi, Rambam, Rambam, Ibn Ezra, I read it, oh, excuse me, Schneerson. Oh, Schneerson's like over the top talking about Messiah. Where did they get it from? Where did they get Messiah from? Where do we get Messiah from? Now, if we read the apostolic scriptures and we read clearly who he is, what he's done, what his followers will do and how they will behave, we have a clear view of who Messiah is. But the sages of Israel, they don't read those, or many or most don't read those, and they say the same thing. Oftentimes, exactly the same thing. In fact, oftentimes, deeper insights even than my own good Christian upbringing gave me into who Messiah is. How is that possible if he's not mentioned by title one time in the Hebrew Scriptures? How is it possible? Because he's hidden. The deepest truth, sometimes God wants to broadcast it from the mountaintop as he did at Sinai, but sometimes the deepest truth, the longest lasting truth, are those that are below the surface. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have paid attention to the surface. One of the things that we know in our discipline and in our halakha and our walk, that the first thing we do when we read the scripture is we say, how can this apply practically? And the second question we ask about is, after we, after we have done what it says practically, then we ask the question, is this teaching something deeper? And we follow a procedure. We go through, we go through the, the uh, uh, Pardes format and we end up with the hidden things last. That was accidental, right? <laughs> okay, so we have so we have this notion of a Messiah. And certainly in the days of Yeshua in the first century, this certainly was true. A lot of people had this understanding of who Messiah was, what he would come to do. Although they didn't understand everything, I would offer that maybe we don't either. They certainly had a notion that there was such a thing. Where'd they get it from? As I say, they get it from below the surface. Not at the surface level of reading the Hebrew Scriptures, but below the surface. Because as we read again and again, there's something else going on. God likes to be hidden. He wants to be hidden. And you know when Messiah showed up, Beginning with Matthew, he does the same thing. He's hidden. But he show up on the scene and says, I just want everyone to know I'm the Messiah that you don't read about at all. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Don't tell me who I am. 
Who are you? <laughs> I'm Messiah. What's that? <laughs> okay, so he, so he says, don't tell anybody who I am. I'm going to tell you I'm the Messiah that you never find spoken of by title explicitly on the surface of Scripture. <laughs> this way, well, no, he's not there. Of course he's there. He's all the way through the Scripture. But he's not known. You can't say, there it is, that talking about Messiah. I don't know. Isaiah 11 is pretty clear. What does he say? Uh, he says that uh, in, that, in that day it's all speaking of the root of Jesse. Oh, of course. Yeah, and he says all Israel uh, will return or resort to him. We know it's talking of Messiah. Actually, we have no difficult we have no difficulty finding Messiah all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's never this kind of thing that you can sit down and say when somebody says, "Show me where the Messiah is mentioned," then you can say right there. You can't do that. You may misunderstand what the point I'm making was. The word, the anointed one, the, the anoint, throughout the Tanakh we read the anointed one again and again and again. Many times. Why did the English translators translate it as mom's Bible did there, the Messiah? Let's not get off track because the point is not that. The point with regard to with that's right exactly. And what we need to what we need to recognize is the sages of Israel had a deep understanding of not Messiah in the sense of David the Anointed One or or Samuel the Anointed One or Cyrus who's called Messiah in the in the Hebrew right Cyrus a foreign king is called Messiah. I'm sorry he's not the Messiah. Do you understand my point? The Messiah is someone different. He's singular. There's not. You can't divide it between multiple. The Messiah of all Messiahs. The Messiah of all Messiahs. The sages of Israel know who he is too. They describe him. They describe him in detail. And yet, when Messiah himself, Yeshua, shows up, he does not. He does not openly proclaim himself that way. Somebody who has a Bible, go to John, chapter ten, verse twenty-four. And our, our purpose here is not to go beyond the notion that God is hidden, wants to be hidden, because we're going to explore why he wants to be hidden in a moment here. But it's to expand upon the idea that uh, Messiah is hidden. Oh, <laughs> 
1024. Give me a Bible with bigger print. My goodness, look at that. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us the I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, a couple things that come to mind when you read this, and it may not be evident to you right off, of, off the bat, but again, they're wanting to know, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And most people don't ask the question, but maybe you should. What's the Messiah? How do they know about the Messiah? Why do they ask this question? What's going on that they would ask this question? Because we're looking for someone. We're not looking for someone. We're looking for someone. Why? Because we know there's an end of age coming. And we know the Messiah has something to do about the end of the age. Right? And actually, if you, if you go back into the intertestament period, between the end of the Tanakh, the finish of the completion of the Tanakh, and the, uh, the beginning of writing the apostolic scriptures, in that period, there's like a whole genre of, of, of religious uh, um, documentation about the Messiah and apocalypse and the end of the age. So it's a very popular thing. It's like, it's like popular reading, you know? It's really kind of fun, cool. Like the Left Behind Left Behind series, yeah. But more authoritative. Now go to Luke chapter 22, verse 26, or 22, verse 67. Why do you say Uh Because that's the technical term. But the inter, the inter non-Hebrew, non-Greek period. The inter-apostolic... Well, there's 400 years that nothing was written. I mean, there was no written. There's lots of stuff written. I mean, but there was nothing that was accepted as the. Yeah, good. No, no, because it was there was no prophecy given. That's right. That's what it was. 400 years of silence from heaven. That's right. Dale, you got it again. Can you read that? Luke 2267. Luke. Somebody read out of the Dale. Luke twenty two sixty seven. It's like it's like torture for him here. Luke twenty two sixty seven. Thank you. No, sorry, let me go for it. Okay. Would you want to talk? Tell us. Matt, he says, if you're the Messiah, tell us. And his answer was, this is a different answer, his answer this time is, if I tell you, you won't believe. Now that's kind of weird, isn't it? So if I don't tell you, you will believe? In other words, if I don't tell you, you will believe, but if I tell you, you won't believe. Somebody uh, look up Matthew 13, verse 10. Of course. And actually from that he's drawing from a very popular series, the Enoch series. Ah, they did. Of course they did. They did. They understood. Uh, Matthew 10, 13? Or 13, 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak of the parable? Them, 
No, that's good enough. Why, why do we use parables? Let me, let me rephrase this. Now that verse may get confused about the purpose of parables. Somebody that, somebody that reads, um, somebody that reads the Talmud much, tell me what the purpose of par- parables is. To reveal truth, not to hide it. Why, why do we use parables? What are parables? They're just stories. Why do they story? They're stories to illustrate a truth. A truth. This is like this. It's a similitude. This is like this. Well, no, that seems to say the opposite, doesn't it? I teach in parables to conceal truth. That's the key. What he did was he taught in parables to his disciples so that they would understand the truth. It wasn't intentional so they would never understand it. Why? How does that relate back to the John 10, 24? Where his answer was, and, or in, in Luke 22, if I tell you, you won't believe. Very good. There is a, and that's exactly right, there's a, there's a understanding of, well, let's just step back. We know this for truth. When Abraham was in Ur, and he lived among a people, his father was an idolater, not just an idolater, but a purveyor of idols, right, Terah. And he sold them. It's a really good story how when Abraham finally discovered that there was a God of creation. How did he discover there was a God of creation? Like one God. One God. How did Abraham discover there was one God? He said, here's nature, and it's so vast, because everybody else believed in plural gods. This is so vast, there can't possibly be made by multiples. There can only be one God that made it. Well, that's the opposite of what we talked about last night. Nature, it may reveal the glory of God, but it seems to conceal him and hide him as well. Because people come up with ex- other explanations. Evolution is another perfect example. Multiple gods, another example. They choose not to believe there's one God. Abraham, of course, we know that Abraham then chooses to follow the one God in the midst of idolaters. The nice little uh, story about how that then is played out in his father uh, Terah's um, idol shop, where when Terah was gone to work or on a trip one day, Abraham made sure all the idols got bashed except one. And when Terah came back, he said, "What happened to all the idols?" He pointed to the idol in the corner that had the bat in its hand and go, "Who did it?" <laughs> Terah couldn't argue with that because he believed that idols were real right Abraham was was not alone though as a one a man who believed in one true God this is not a new thing that sprung on the planet in that moment there's a long history of people who believed in one true God his grandfather his grandfather and his great grandfather believed in one true God the difference is being able to transmit it from father to son, to grandson, to great-grandson. The break in the chain, Terah's the break in the chain. That's pretty bad. That's why Abraham is now considered the father of our faith. Because he taught his children. He taught their children. He taught their children. And we, we can say now for a long, long time, there's been no break in the chain. You certainly don't want to be the break in the chain, do you? Why is God hidden? 
Kohelet we saw that chaos is only perceived by man that God really is in charge and it's depressing when you consider the fact that if God isn't in charge it's left up to us to make order from the chaos and that's where all all government and I'm not talking about government as a society but that's where all government comes from we make up our own rules in order to bring order to chaos otherwise it's anarchy right you have to have rules Organization. That's perfect. Organization. You know, and it, you know, computer programmers, we can identify this, man. Organization is is got to you've got to have organization. Everything goes where it goes. If anything's out there on the on the fringes, if anything's out there on the fringes, you have an exception. And it crashes. Blue screen if you're in Windows, right? <laughs> 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 but it's true if things get outside the bounds outside the bounds of, of what we've decided we can't permit it some societies have the bounds different from others we now have terms like civilized societies do such and such civilized? what's civilized? organized but, but organized a certain way we'll all agree such and such right? and you can go from culture to culture and Big pieces are kind of all the same, right? There's some stuff that doesn't work. Everybody has their little thing that they don't quite get. Played out at Mount Sinai when, when uh, 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 by, by legend, God goes to all the nations and he asks them one at a time, Will you accept my Torah? And the Ishmaelites say, What's written in it? Thou shalt not steal. No, we won't accept that Torah. <laughs> And he goes to the who's the killer? Esau. Esau. He goes to Esau and he says, "Will you accept it?" And and uh, Edomites say, "No." What's written in it? And he says, "Thou shalt not kill." And they said, "We will not accept that." And when he goes to Israel, he goes to all the nations. When he goes to Israel, the question comes to Israel, and the and the question to Israel is, "Here's my Torah. Will you accept it?" And the response was, "Not what is in it." The response was, "All that you have said, we will do." Sight unseen, faith. Your order's good enough. Certainly better than anything we had as slaves. Besides, you rescued us with a mighty outstretched arm. You've led us through this wilderness. <laughs> How could we not accept your divine love letter? We would, of course, not accept that. And that actually, um, if you're an idolatry, it's kind of a problem. But I don't, um, I think the 30s that people saw supernatural forces and they interpreted them as being independent or on equal par with God. And so they began to worship those right. as if that was being about last night. If you ever impose your own order on the church. It's not that you say there is no order. It's if you say, well, if I offer an offering, I'll get rid of it. You know? If I do this, I'll get children. If I so it's an effort to say, I don't want God's order, what he says will happen. I want to go to control it myself. And, and the notion that God is hidden and, and wants to be hidden and only through faith is, is visible, as it, visible. Only through faith is visible. May fall on some problems when we get in the scripture. Maybe you've thought of some since last night. Somebody turn to Romans chapter 1. Verse 16. Mm-hmm. Okay. 16 through 24. 
Friend not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what, he, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but because that became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. You see, we really have seen God since the beginning. Even though he was hidden, we really have seen him. If we go back to the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They heard his voice. They were intimately aware of him and he of them. And they exchanged that. Mm-hmm. It says in the Bible, in Genesis, we walked with them. Mm-hmm. And Adam says heard God and hid. That's right. Isn't God omnipresent? Does that not mean that Jesus was walking in the garden with Adam? Or how could they have hid? They're, they're hid because they're sin, right? They're hid because they know that they had disobeyed him. And they're hid because they knew that he could see them anyway. But they're hid because of their sin. No, because he says, where are you? But that's because he didn't know. Yeah. God asks us a lot of times, where are you? That's actually, I think, a very... Um, that's a very specific thing. God hiding himself. It's a certain... It's a certain thing to ask, where are you? It's not so much that he really was a nursing. He didn't. That's right. And the opposite. The reason why he hides is because he wants to be known. That's exactly the point. He wants us to say, God, where are you? You know, the, the classic, the classic is not man in search of God. The classic is God in search of man. Right? That's the classic. The perspective is totally reversed from what we would expect. We would it. We say, this is the way things are. And we identify it immediately. It's true. It's true. Bad things happen to good people. It's true. You work hard. People die young. Sometimes they die old. Sometimes the people, you ask them, why did you live to 95? I drank. I smoked. You know, I lived a horrible life. I was a gambler. You know, you know everybody's died but me. And people go, oh, I guess we should do that. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, what it is, it's not luck, what is it, what is it? When we see life and we see that it's upside down, we see that it's true, but we see it's upside down from what we read by the way it should be. 
that causes us to doubt. God wants us to have faith. He wants us to go beyond what we see and trust Him. He wants us to seek Him though He is hidden. But the key here is when we read Romans 1, it says that God, was, God has been clearly visible through His creation. Do you agree with that? I'm not saying do you agree with the scripture. I'm just asking, does that concept make sense to you? Is he clearly visible through his creation? I see words everywhere, and I said, I'm trying to see the rules of the thing, and I'm looking at two of my blood. I'm asking the wrong people the question. <laughs> That's right. I'm asking it's the wrong people. It's visible if you're going like this, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Although it's there, that's right. It's not clearly visible. That's right. Your eyes and that's what that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, it was clearly visible. They decided to change the truth for a lie. Here's the problem that we all face. And by the way, it is clearly visible, visible to all of us. We look out there in a beautiful day and say, "Wow, isn't God good?" <laughs> I mean, really, we're, that's a pretty big leap of logic. It is from a human perspective. But it's because we see it and we recognize that's all. God is at work and he's done this wonderful thing. But you know something? We are overcoming a bias that's been infused in us for thousands of years. Because Paul is not talking about every individual when he says they're experiencing the truth for a lie. He's talking about mankind is experiencing truth for a lie. So the system, originally, originally everybody knew who God was. But eventually, they extends the truth for a lie. And now the society, the systems around us, the orders, the, the, the people that have done a good job in making nice governance to keep us all safe, they teach us that's not God that's at work. So there's, there's bias against it. We come against this bias every day. Sometimes we just blow it off, oh, it's whatever, that's whatever they think. But we don't understand that it really does, it really does affect our soul. For people to say God didn't create the world affects our soul when we hear that. Because we know that's not true. There's a really good book right now, or not now, 900 year old book called the Kuzari. And it's a book by Yehuda Halevi. He's the sage poet of Sephardi Judaism from Spain. And he wrote the book. No one knows if it's an accurate account or not, but he wrote the book because. It was a description of a rabbi that goes to the head of the Kazakhs and he argues, he argues for, for the God of the Bible against, uh, against Greek philosophy, against Islam, and against uh, systematic Christianity at the time. And he argues for it, and the king of the Kazakhs is so compelled by the truth and the logic of it he converts to Judaism and eventually the whole kingdom converts to Judaism but the book as a, as a system of logic is really really rather remarkable and one of the things that in, in the Kuzari that, that Yehuda Halevi describes is this notion that philosophy says creation has always been here and always will be that's Greek philosophy so what I want to do is I want to take us to Acts chapter 17 and with that in mind, knowing that the Greeks don't believe there was a creator, Greek philosophy is, rejects the notion that there is any change to, to the system or order has been or ever will be. 17, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 21. 
That's it. Yeah. How, how far? Uh, 17, 21 through 32. Oh. So Paul standing in the midst of the Aerotagus. Um, so. It's down the hill from, from, the, from the Parthenon. It's er, from the uh, uh, Acropolis. It's just down the hill. Men of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Okay, we'll pause for just a second. That it really is a re- an intriguing thing to a Greek philosopher. Because they know everything. It's an intriguing thing as well. It's an intriguing thing as well because as philosophers, I mean, it, it's hard for us to imagine polytheism as being very smart. But it's only because we live in Western society. Because the smartest people in the world, from a human perspective, have been, have, have been idolaters. The Greeks, they were, they were brilliant. These are some very smart people. Well, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, pause just for a second there. See how he's offended them right away. I know that sometimes you read that he offends them when he talks about the resurrection of the dead here in a moment. But he offends them right from the beginning. How does he offend them? First of all, he finds common ground with them. I see you have an, you have an altar here for the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about him. That's curious. I can listen to that. But then you really describe a God that created something? No. The gods did not create. Creation has always been and always will be. You read it in Second Peter. Things have always been this way and always will be this way. There's no end. There's no beginning. So he sends them right away. There is a creator. And he wants to be known. He goes. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. If they could speak to God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, and yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Mm. For in him we live and move and have our dreams. As even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine dream is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The signs of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a, by a man whom he has appointed, and this and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. Uh, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were some Greek people. Yeah, that's far enough. That's far enough. That's far enough. So, let's recap. We, 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 we know God is hidden, often hidden, but that he's hidden by his design so that we seek him. But he's also hidden because man has deliberately obstructed their view of him, chosen to exchange what they knew about him for a lie. We know that Messiah is hidden in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures below the surface. We know that Messiah, when he, when he comes to earth, speaks enigmatically about himself, not plainly certainly not describing his mission as it is ultimately seen ever so the disciples are still a little bit surprised when it happens now Paul is saying right now in this moment now no one has an excuse because now you can know the truth the God that you have not known you can know why what what was what was the what was the thing that God used to reveal himself here? No, in that passage right there. Ah. Not the resurrection. No. He reveals himself. Why, Janet? How? How does he how does he get found? That he has appointed their boundaries and their times so that they will seek him. It's, it's all of it. That's right. It's family. So, going back to, remember our discussion last night? What's the luck of the draw? Well, you got born into this family or you didn't get born into this family. You got born in a rich family, a poor family, this country, that country, whatever else. This is what Paul's saying. No, no, there's a reason for why you got put where you got put. And there's only one reason why you got put where you got put. And it's a really good reason. You know that hidden God? He wants you to seek Him. Because in the seeking Him, He will be found. See, you know, I don't know if I can articulate this, and I'm not sure this is where you're going with it, but it's not that... I'm not going anywhere. You can go anywhere you want. It's not that God is trying to hide, but he wants us to find him specifically in the material world. That's right. Because our souls were sent here somehow because it seems like our soul is sanctified by going through this material world. Mm-hmm. And we have to know God in this material world, not outside the material world, because we can't find him necessarily there. Because it's safe. It's required to right. see him in this but world. see him in what we know, to see him in our circumstances, see him in the doors of, of the life that we have with family or with uh, friends or with uh, ministry and mixed and whatever, all the things, see him in our trials, see him, I mean, it's so physical, and that's where we forget to see him, or we don't see him, and then when the ultimate revelation came, came with Messiah, it's because then Messiah was put in the physical world, that's right. we can see this now in the physical world, and then even our bodies have to be incurred in the physical world, and also our bodies be purified. That is resurrected new. It's somehow about going through the process of this physical world and that we must find God in this realm. And that's what Kohalit then would be is um, this is what it looks like, but this is how you're supposed to find me. That's right. Can I have some? Yes. Yeah. Peter and I were reading Jesus' and yesterday or the day before we were reading 
And chapter 33 was amazing. It's about setting out a watchman on the wall to set out warnings. And if you will heed the warnings from your parents, God will draw you to him. And if you refuse to heed the warnings from the turn to wickedness, then God will bring the judgment on it. But he says to him, to them, says to them, this is what God is speaking to Ezekiel to tell the people. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not that he brings the death and the punishment on them. It's not for his pleasure. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from the evil way. So why should he die? And so his heart is not to bring in death and destruction and hardness. His heart is that he sets watchmen all around him. He sets people who will tell us. He sets us in the inhabitations and in the boundaries of our lives. So that we will see That's him. where we will find it, not in death, not in... And even the, the, the temptation, you know, we talk about this a lot, is I want to go to heaven. We won't necessarily find him there. He wants us to, because if we don't find him here, we'll never even know him there. So the joy of, of the opportunities that he continues, that's in his life. And don't wish for something else, because this is where, and that's where it feels so intense, is when we actually find him here, that's where the joy is. We're not finding him somewhere up there. We are actually finding him here. Remember years ago, Chester had an example, and I probably won't say it all right. But she said, if you don't want to live near him now, why would you want to live close to him then? And if he's going to prepare a place for you, and if your place on earth is not to be close to God, and not to desire him in where he is, then why do you say, I can't wait to go to heaven to be with him? Your heart is not with him. And I don't remember how I used to say it, but it was something that used to say a long time ago. And he wants to draw us. He puts us in all these places. He puts circumstances. He puts everything in our life. So we will look for him. I think he wants us to seek him also because he wants us to relationship with him. He wants us to... Just knowing about him. Yeah. He, I mean, he wants us to... Be a friend. He wants us to have a relationship with him. So I think he wants us to seek him so that we can. And that relationship is never Separate completely there. It's always, oh, I need a little more. Yeah. That's right. And I love the story last night. Was it you talking about time to go see? Because that's really, that's really what we're talking about. That's really, that's, that's exactly it. The delight of, of, of seeking. Concrete, where does he hide? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. 
Because I do it all the time. I thought it's just you're looking for him and you find him everywhere. That's what it's called. That's why I have it where. Give me an example. Does he hide in the things that catch our attention? Like people walking down the road and you see something? Does he hide in the words that people say to us? Does he hide in his words? Always in his words. For just example, I think we're going to tie these two times around. Um, but I find the fact that he's in the final column. And he's going to enter the room in the bride, are in this passage, this kind of love story. And it's right twice in the book. The groom, mm-hmm. And the second time, the bride found the staircase, you know, he's not going to go over to the room because I'm already in bed. I turn it up and on, the door closes. You know, he's going to come in through the window. You feel sorry for him. Because that looks funny. He's gone. He looks all over the city. He goes and finds the watchman. He says, where did you go? Mm-hmm. He goes to the daughter of Jerusalem and says, he's still in my room. What does your room look like? And it's interesting. The only thing he's going to do with his praises is he finally remembers. I know where he is. He's where he always goes. He goes down to the garden. He sees his land by the lily. The idea is it was fascinating about that is the groom never he never finds the groom in the sense that oh wow, he's hiding behind that rock, I never got to look there. <laughs> it was always the idea of I know where he is. I know where he always goes. But he couldn't see that until he began to see who he is. And I think that's our challenge. God is hiding everywhere. The problem though is if we don't see who God is, we won't see him in those things. So we'll see a difficult circumstance that God is mean, or this is unfair, or there's chaos in the world. But if you know that God is good, and that all things are done by His good, we'll go to this challenge and we'll go, God, I don't understand this, but I know you're here. I think that is when searching for God, where you find God. If you know Him, and the more that you know Him, the more that you want to know Him, the more He will reveal Himself in everything. An example that I'd ask you about is do you like to do you like to know the story before you finish it, or do you want to read the book and enjoy it? And it, actually, the, the 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 pretext for that was in a relationship, right? But there's there's a certain joy when you enter in a relationship with someone from the opposite gender that you uh, that you learn things about them. That's 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 part of the fun is you get to learn about somebody else. The relationship as it grows is is as it deepens is even more enjoyable and that's and i think that's what we're we're talking about a relationship that isn't like okay well, we got that done you know this world is not my home you know i'm just passing through my treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue okay whew, got that taken care of i got a relationship i'm going to heaven as opposed to a relationship that's deepening as Sherry describes because of the things that we're going through because of the things in this physical world and how he relates to us in the physical world not just in an ethereal sense isn't it nice God's in charge that's not what we're talking about we're talking about actually uh, employing the things in the physical world and this is a, 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 correct me if I'm wrong is what you're saying like the food that I eat yeah. you can touch it you can touch I can touch it, it. that's it's right physical the washing of my hands, the clothes that I wear, 
the prayers that I pray, that they're that they're they're not simple thoughts, but they're actions that remind me of his of his character and Although that's come back to you guys, And this is your heart. 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 And this is
Just as long as we don't experience the actual obedience for a theology. Well, the intellectual comes in understanding the circumstances, so it's not just about, uh, well, I don't know how to explain it, but it deepens the experience, the intellectual understanding deepens the experience. The, the problem is, and that's the problem is, again, we are we we are prone towards order and system that we can that we can file away in our minds. That's why philosophies and theologies appeal to us is because we can file it away and we don't have to worry about it anymore, and it makes sense to us. And so we we are we are naturally, I shouldn't say naturally, we are unfortunately supernaturally drawn to a system other than God's system and so we like theologies we like them a lot we like everything to be systematic and make sense to us when sometimes God doesn't want to present it to us at all a, a, a perfect example is the resurrection of the dead you know that's really not the way that I would have done everything you know I mean especially looking at the prophets and the way that the prophets describe things and the, and the end of the age I really would have waited and waited to the end of the age. I wouldn't have had this this apparent, you know, reconnection, re-revelation. Because remember, we saw God at the beginning and we exchanged that for lies. And then here's this time several thousand years ago where once again for a moment we have this this brief but intense flow of information. God is no longer hidden. He's like out in the open and he's preaching through prophets. And we have resurrection of the dead and people are, people are being healed and all sorts of stuff that just doesn't make any physical sense. And then it goes silent again. And as the further we get away from it, of course, you know, the less likely we are to have that experience, even though it wasn't our experience, have that experience actually touch us. Just like the days, the days of Noah. The further they are away from the creation, the, the less they were likely to have that touch them and affect them. They can just do whatever we want. We'll make our own system. So it's much the same way. I mean, so it is pretty. It is a pretty illogical way to do it. Because you know, why reveal yourself in these blasts and brilliant, you know, like Sinai of information, suddenly revealing yourself to the world and creation, and then go dark again? But it is kind of make you want to look. It does make you want to seek it out. Like that was. That was amazing. I wasn't living there, but wow, that was a lot of information to walk. Look at look at the last third of your Bible, quarter of your Bible. There's a lot of stuff there. That, talk about commentary in the Tanakh. That's some cool commentary. But it's a lot to take in at once, especially if you're trying to find a system to put it into, which is why people did it. Because then everything fits, and then I don't have to pay attention. Because otherwise, there's some really troubling and compelling things there that that's right but that's what he wants remember this is what he wants and stop you can guys can continue but I'm done with my talk but what he really wants is he wants a relationship he wants to be he wants to be found but not found in the sense of a, as a destination he wants to be found in that we continue to seek him which is why he only he, he is like playing peekaboo he was only hiding a little bit until we they get a little bit bored and then he reveals a little bit and then we come forward again. So that's the whole thing about the heart. You know, 